Can Polarization Be Reversed? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Kevin Vallier. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Kevin Vallier. Kevin is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University and Director of the University's Program in Philosophy, Politics, Economics, and Law. He's the author of many things, including books like Liberal Politics and Public Faith, Beyond Separation, and Must Politics Be War? Restoring Our Trust in the Open Society. The latter informed the first episode Kevin and I recorded together. His newest book, Trust in a Polarized Age, offers a timely exploration of how we got where we are today with polarized politics and what we can do now to increase trust and reduce polarization. It just came out on November 10th, and I encourage you to check it out. It will form the basis of our conversation today. Kevin, welcome back to The Curious Task. Pleasure to be back. So Kevin, our question today is, can polarization be reversed? And I think that's actually a great follow-up to the other episode we did together. On that note, I'd like to bridge the last conversation we had a while ago to the one today. So there's so much in your book, and we can go at this from many angles. So let's do this. I'm just going to pick one and go with it. Let's start a similar way that we did last time, actually. Can you first set the stage for exactly what you mean here by polarization in our society. And we'll get to the reversal part later, of course, but just setting the stage to start. Sure. So um, political polarization is a term that's commonly thrown about to describe actually four different but intimately related phenomena. First, there's issue-based polarization, which is the one most people think of, which is that we come to disagree more about issues and we fall into kind of distinct camps of having certain kinds of political or policy views. But there's also affective polarization. Um, It has polarization by affect or emotional state. Um, And there's actually more of that than there is issue-based polarization in terms of people just disliking people on the other side. I'm just having negative uh, feelings about them, being angry with them, uh, hating them. Uh, Then there's sorting. And sorting is when people sort of either move, like physically move, or they just change their social networks or social circles. So this issue-based sorting, you know, people don't want to hear other people's policy views. And then there's uh, affect-based sorting. That's when people just only hang around people that, you know, don't make them upset, let's say, over political issues. So I call all of those things partisan divergence to cover all of those phenomenon which is that, you know, by through our political partisanship, we're diverging from one another, both in the sense that we dislike each other more and that we're spending less time together. And of course, in your book, you connect that to the fact that this is all linked to trust, right? So can you make that connection for us now that the how polarization affects our, our trust levels? Yeah. So I actually think the main problem that we're facing is falling levels of trust, both in society and in certain parts of the government. Um, Polarization in itself, the issue-based polarization or issue-based sorting, those aren't problems in themselves. I mean, if we come to disagree more, you know, or to disagree in, you know, distinct groups, um, you know, that's not, that's not a disaster, right? Um, If we trust each other, you know, we can probably find some way to resolve our disputes or to decentralize our disputes um, and solve them. The polarization on the issue-based level really is only problem when trust is low because you think that your opponents have the views they have because they're bad people. So the affect-based polarization kind of 
I think pollutes the issue based polarization when you don't trust other people because you're already primed to respond negatively to them. As far as effective polarization and sorting goes, um, the interesting thing here is that there seems to be some quite uh, intimate connection between trust um, and effective polarization. It's weird to trust people you hate. So, you know, the thought is that if you could find ways to increase trust, then you might be able to reduce effective polarization just directly. You know, people are just going to be less angry and hateful of people that they can say, okay, you know, they're, they're pretty trustworthy. So the thought here is that trust is what makes issue-based polarization a problem. If we can raise trust, it won't be as much of a problem. And uh, trust should directly address and combat uh, effective polarization and sorting. You you make the causal link in your book between social polarization and political polarization. And this yeah. may, may seem obvious on the surface, but can you tell us a little bit about what's really going on underneath the, sur- the surface there when we talk about why we should consider those two things distinctly? So there's so the two big concepts of trust I'm working with are generalized or social trust, which is trust in most people or strangers. And then there's political trust, which is trust in government um, or particular parts of the government, the presidency, you know, the CDC or something along those lines. Um, and, um, the relationship between those two ideas is in itself complex, but the relationship with polarization to both of those ideas is even more complex. Um, so, um, there's arguably a large number of causal connections between partisan divergence and social trust and political trust. And here's how some of them might go. If you trust fewer people, um, you're less likely to listen to them. Um, low trust people tend to have more extreme views. Not that, you know, having principled views is a problem, but that, um, um, you just tend to moderate your opinion less because you, you just don't listen to others. So what, and that, and the result of that, um, can be that, you know, there's this broader spectrum of opinion, but that's based in mistrust. And then this filters up to the political level where, you know, people start to win elections on the basis of the fact that they hate the other side and can express disdain for the other side. Um, and that increases effective polarization. And then the greater political polarization makes the government less functional. Maybe there's gridlock, right? Maybe there's corruption. So that's just one kind of causal chain. Trust falls, polarization increases. That's reflected in the structure and behavior of government. And then that produces worse performance. So, um, but there's a, there's a, there's a number of, uh, other ways it can go, um, so, for instance, it might be the case that um, political trust, um, when it falls, uh, encourages populist voting. Right. Um, there's some evidence that it does. And, um, you know, people think, oh, well, we've got to drain the swamp. Um, but um, this can produce polarization if, for instance, the populist leaders really focused on defining in-groups and out-groups in their society, which is typically what they do, right? Like, here's the real people and here's the fake. Right. The, the fake people. Right. And I think, you know, we haven't been able to see this in the data, but I think it's plausible that when you divide the country up into distinct tribes yourself and your high status, that makes it more likely that people will do that as well. And so once they, they have a new category of difference, there's a new way to distrust others. Right. Um, so there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different connections, but, but what I end up doing is putting the, the, the causal stories together into what I call the distrust divergence loop or just a doom loop where divergence increases distrust and distrust increases divergence. And my view is that that's why social trust and political trust are falling so much in the United States that and a, a pattern that we do not see 
and even any other major democracy. Political trust sort of decreases in some European countries, but social trust is really stable. Yeah, sorry, political trust may decrease, but we've had the biggest decline, huge declines. And and I'm going to get into a couple of specific fa- factors that you say, uh, both empirically and of course philosophically, would increase would increase trust. But before I do one more sort of foundational element here, you make the, the point in your book, and and you open up the discussion for the idea that we're trying to talk here about, at least in your mind real trust on the one hand, but for the right reasons. Before we That's get right. to a couple of specific factors, can you can you get into that a little bit as well? Yeah. So imagine we had a propagandistic or, you know, uh, a government, one that was just really, really interested in manipulating public opinion. And let's assume that it was effective at this as well. So it could convey to people that others are trustworthy when they're not. And so it could create trust based on bad or mistaken beliefs and through manipulation and control. Trust would go up, but that's not, we don't want to give it that way. What we want is for trust, first of all, to be rational in the sense that it's based on others' actual trustworthiness, right? So we don't want it to be attuned to the truth about others' trustworthiness. Um, And that means that, you know, we have to say a little bit more about what trustworthiness involves. So um, in this case, in my my understanding, trustworthiness is... uh, is a disposition to follow certain kinds of common sense moral rules and to follow the rules of your particular institution if you're embedded in one, um, the ones that you know seem appropriate for that institution. So the, essentially what we're doing when we're saying others are trustworthy is we're not just saying we can rely on them, we, we're saying that they are acting from on you know moral considerations, that they're, they're engaged in moral behavior. Um, so trust for the right reasons means um, that we trust people because they're trustworthy and they're trustworthy because we think that they, you know, are in some sense moral and decent. Um, those are the kinds of reasons that we want to trust. And that's what trust for the right reasons comes to. So it's non-manipulative, open, uh, rational, you know, evidence-based trust. Right. So as we go through our conversation here, me, me and the listeners will keep in mind that anytime we talk about something that'll increase trust, let's say in your book, you talk about, yes, it's increasing trust, but indeed for the right reasons is, is the idea. That's right. And that's what's key because I, I argue it, you know, in many of the chapters that um, an institution will create trust just empirically speaking. And then I give the moral or philosophical argument that will also create it for the right reasons. Um, and you know that ends up that ends up being important because, you know, you don't want to trust, just create trust. And, and before I jump right into a couple of factors, I'd like you to talk about, you know, th- those listening might be curious to know, as you, of course, you do get into this in your book, but how exactly can one get an idea of what's going on with, with trust in, in empirically and, and really understand how, what causes what? So how did you go about understanding the real life cause and effects of trust in, in your book? I, and of course, we encourage people to go check out the book and get into the details. But but for your sake here, just at a high level, how did you structure your understanding of all this? So there's two empirical literatures, big empirical literatures on trust. Um, there's the first in economics, which is the smaller one where people play what are called trust games in the lab. And trust games are something like sequential prisoners. Basically, I have a pot of money. Um, I can share it, you know, with somebody else. Um, and um, basic, I mean, basically, the, the, the effect is um, that other person can then either accept or reject the offer that I make them. And if they reject it, then neither of us get anything. But if they accept it, then we both get it. So, for instance, if I have a dollar, right, right, I can offer you 50 cents 
And then you can either accept that, in which case we both get 50 cents, or you reject it, in which case we both get nothing. Well, it turns out that people, you know, if you say, here, I'll, ha- I'll, I'll give you one cent, I'll keep 99. From a pure economic perspective, that's a Pareto improvement, and so you should accept it. But, but most people reject it. They think it's unfair. And so they prefer not to engage in the interaction at all. So in the lab, the offer is supposed to be trust, represent trustworthiness. And the response is supposed to represent trust, right? So the, 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 the response is easier to understand, right? You say, look, I trust this person to, because they've acted fairly or, or, or they've given us something like an equal division. Right, right. Um, and then the trustworthiness is, right, the judgment that the other person's acting from fairness or something like those lines. Tons and tons of experiments on the trust game, looking at different factors that affect it. The bigger literature in social trust is survey data. Um, and um, the survey data are from a variety of different sources. There's the World Value Survey. There's a general social survey. There's American National Election Survey. But they also have uh, barometers, uh, large polls that are taken in, in regions all over the world, like the Afro barometer, the Euro barometer. Um, and they all ask questions of, of one kind or another about whether most people can be trusted in your society or whether you can ever be too careful in trusting people or if you leave a, a wallet um, in a public place, how likely is it that someone will um, uh, return it to you? And then they collect the data and do you know a whole host of different kinds of comparisons. Um, so the... Difficulty with these two data sources is whether they tell the same story. And at low stakes, they don't tell the same story. Low stakes in the trust game, that is, um, when the amount of money is very small. But there is evidence that as you raise the stakes, the two literatures start to converge, right? So, yeah, if you're splitting a dollar in a trust game, then the way people answer in survey data and the way they behave in the lab are different. But, um, you know, the idea is if you, when you start to get to higher stakes, the, um, the two converge. However, um, there's still a debate about which we should prioritize. And of course the economists say the lab and the political scientists say the world. Um, and I'm one of those who understands the worries about, um, the, uh, 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 the laboratory settings. Where I think the people, when they're embedded in their culture, are more likely to give the indicative responses. Um, and I also think the trust, because the trust game situations are pretty artificial, um, and you're not engaged with strangers according to all the cues that you would normally have, like if it's anonymous. So I, I, I say, you know, look, we don't really know how much they conflict because the stakes are so low in most of the trust games. So I go with the survey data for the most part. And then, you know, then you were just looking at correlations um, and trying to suss out causal relationships through kind of standard statistical analysis. And so what I did was after a couple of years of reading, you know, a few hundred, at least a hundred or so different articles, um, empirical articles, I think it got well over that in the end. Um, then I started to look at lit reviews of, of um, the different subfields. And so what I did, particularly in chapter two, was I put together a sort of executive summary of the literature on the causes and consequences of social and political trust. And some of the trust researchers I've worked with are very appreciative because they said, look, you know, we only work in our subfield. We don't really ever 
survey this stuff from 30,000 feet. Right. Um, and so that's what I, one of the, I think the things that people will like most about the book is that it's, is this chapter two is really kind of uh, executive summary of thousands of different papers um, that I was able to, to put together um, over the course of about three or four years. And I actually really enjoyed that section of the book too. So on, on that great diving board we set up, I'd like to jump into a couple of these here, actually. And like, like I said, like you know, what I'm about to go into for everyone listening is obviously a non-exhaustive list. There's no way that we'd have me and Kevin would have time to talk about everything in the book or hit on every point. But you do go into a few factors that have been said to affect, increase, or decrease social trust. So I'd like to start there. Um, you know, I'm just going to pick one on my notes here. So for instance, uh, economic inequality is one you talk yes. about in the book. Could could you talk a bit about that? How that affects social trust. Yeah, it's but that's actually one of the most vexed uh ones from my perspective on the connections getting clearer in the cause causal era. Um most trust researchers think that societies with less in economic inequality are more socially trusting and are more socially trusting for that reason. That seeing economic inequality makes people distrust others because they think the system is unfair or they think that equality is like in itself a sign of unfairness or that it's a sign of, you know, some other kind of corruption or something wrong. Most trust researchers think this, but the researchers I've worked with have some a really compelling argument that either all or nearly all of the causation runs in the other direction. And here's the, the basic mechanism. Um, um, when a society is more socially trusting, they mind redistribution less. So the idea is that, you know, if you're a Swede and, you know, you're redistributed from, you're not worried that the person is going to say, use their food stamps to buy lobster or whatever urban legends, you know, we we've heard about how people spend food stamps in the U S but whereas in the, the U S there's suspicion, right? The thought is that the people who received the transfers were wasted. And there is, there, there's a very, very good and comprehensive paper on this that, that was able to convince me that, that that was the main show, was that if you had more trust, you'd have more redistribution. Um, and I think that also helps to explain why we redistribute less, because it's partly coded racially. And, you know, with kind of racial attitudes in the U.S., I think that can also... I think there's also, you know, moral reasons to... <laughs> not want to redistribute, but um, that probably is playing a role for a lot of people of thinking of the wrong sort of people getting the transfer. Right. Whereas in Sweden, they, you know, uh, it's just them for the most part. And, and another, um, another category that affects um, increases or decreases social trust was what you titled as personality and cultures. Um, and I was wondering if you can get a, get a bit into that before we move on to uh, factors about political trust. So, so we're still in this, for everyone listening, we're still in the social trust category. Yeah. And Kevin does talk about in his book, personality and cultures. Yeah. So it's cultures vague. It's what you talk about when you um, don't know more. Um, but per, the personality traits, there are some connections with um, the big five personality traits and social trust. The problem is you know, things like openness to experience or people being more trusting. Um, the, the, the problem is that social trust levels can change without personality profiles changing. Like Denmark, social trust has increased dramatically over the last several decades. No one knows why, but they didn't, <laughs> they didn't, they didn't change their big five distribution as far as I know, not in any big way. And we haven't changed our big five distribution, although 
Um, because although it may be that many Mexican immigrants are lower trust and that may be a, uh, some part some part of the decline, but I've never read anywhere that that's what's going on. Um, I don't even know Mexican-American um, trust levels um, right off because the, the survey data usually isn't broken down by race. Um, so, or actually nationality rather is what I should say in the case of Mexico. Um, so, um, um, but, but for instance, they have broken down with like African-American trust and African-American trust in most people is very low. It's like 17%, but, but, uh, African-American trust and other African-Americans is quite high. I forget the number right off. Um, so big five personality traits do seem to affect social trust, but it's, it's really only part of the story. A lot of social trust does seem to be a response to observing behavior or what you understand about the way your society works, particularly when you're young, because it looks like social trust levels get locked in when you're pretty young. Mm -hmm. um, people's some, Something happens. You, minds can change. You know how it's easier to change people's minds when they're 20 than when they're 30. Right. right. Um, so... Um, uh, culture, in my view, when I break down what it is, I mean, there are these folks who think institutions uh, have the big effect on trust. So they're what we call institutionalists. And then there are the folks who think that social trust tends to cause institutional outcomes. And they're called the culturalists because that's they just have that word. They contrast with it because what is culture? Well, I have a view about this um, that I don't get into a lot of detail in chapter two, but I did talk, I have talked about a lot elsewhere. Um, which is that it has to do with people's observation of compliance or defection from social norms. So, you know, we look at, you know, how often do we think people lie? How often do we think people steal? How often do we think people kill? You know, and then we adjust our level of trust in most people based on our beliefs about how long, how often certain basic social norms are followed and how often they're violated. And they have to be social norms too. They're, they're moral rules that we think everybody knows that everybody knows everybody knows so that there's culpability, right? You steal, I can say, hey, stop stealing, right? It's not my personal norm, like, you know, uh, don't eat pork or that's not one of mine, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, so trust isn't based on, you know, you don't distrust someone who's not Muslim or Jewish because they don't eat pork. That's, you know, that's, that's, you don't think that they know better than to not eat pork, right? Uh, but, with social norms, these are the moral rules that we think others know better than to follow. And we all know what they are, right? We all know there's no, you know, ignorance of morality is no excuse, <laughs> right? Um, so by culture, what I understand it is the sort of totality of compliance or non-compliance with a society's central social norms. And actually, I think that's an excellent place to take a quick break. So we're going to do that right now. Everybody listen to Curious Task today. I'm speaking with Kevin Vallier. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Rosa Pagliarello, and Sabine L. Chidiak. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task.
Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Kevin Vallier today. Kevin, before the break, I think we set a great foundation for our conversation, and we also got into factors that affect a social trust. Before it, we move on to, as I teased at the very beginning of the episode, how we reverse some of the decreases in social and political trust. I want to talk about a few specific factors that do affect political trust before we move on, the counterpart to social trust. As I said before, like you know, there's so much in your book, um, and we can't talk about everything. Some highlights in your book include talking about personal economic improvement, corruption in inequality, uh, you know, that affect political trust, quality of governance, uh, whether something's an authoritarian regime versus a democratic regime, media, education, th- there's so much. So so let's, I think I have a couple here that I can think of. So as far as political trust is concerned, l- let's talk about personal economic improvement. How, how is that? How does that category relate to our conversation about uh, political trust? And I think that relates nicely to what we we're talking about before in social trust as well. So um, there is a debate within the trust literature and trust in government, how much um, people care about um, performance, like the government having fair inputs, um, you know, uh, and then um, the government producing policies that people actually want. And then there's like the, the factors that policy has something to do with, like personal economic improvement. So, and particularly subject your, your subjective perception of it, not not your actual change, not the actual change. So this is why politicians do well when they say, are you better off than when you were four years ago? Because they're more likely to vote for somebody if they think they've sort of, quote, made it rain, right? Right. Um, now, I think part of this is that it's actually rather peculiar and, and not especially well-grounded. I, I think that people expect their governments, morally speaking, to improve their economic position over time. The problem is they think they have the power to do that. And they're only partially correct about this. Governments can do a lot to to make the economy work worse. Um, But when it comes to making it work better, it's a lot more limited in what they can do. Um, But um, the thought is that people trust government more when they feel that their economic standing is is improving. Um, And I think this is why trust in government was higher in the sort of immediate post-war decades than now because uh, economic growth rates and improvement have fallen. And of course, many millennials don't feel like aren't seeing, you know, economic improvement uh, at all. And uh, I'll do one more before I move us on to a couple of other things here. Um, and again, I think it ties back to the social trust area. So so in the political trust area, we talk about uh, corruption and inequality. I, I guess that would seem sort of obvious on the surface, but there's a lot more going on underneath, right? I guess this is the mm-hmm. idea that if people view political corruption causing and, and political inequality causing further corruption or further inequality. Obviously, this is going to decrease trust in our political institutions, I would think. No, I think that's right. I mean, the peculiar thing about it is that people start to care more about corruption and procedures as they get wealthier. So, you know, like you look at the Afrobarometer, it looks like what most Africans care about is their states keeping them secure from death, like conquest, invasion, or internal strife. Once that's secured, it's kind of like a Maslow's hierarchy of trust, you know, trust sources. Right. So once the state secure is secure, people feel it's secure, then they care about economic development if they're poor. And a lot of their political trust is based just on um, um, just based on their economic performance, which is one reason that some people think that the Chinese say they trust their national government so much. Although there are a lot of trust researchers that think they're lying to post. Um, um, but. And then once you get to a certain wealth level, then that basic economic need is met. And um, then people start to look at how the government is treating people, whether they're treating them equally or fairly um, or accordance with one's, you know, personal 
you know, ideology. Um, because again, you're further up in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You've got the material needs met. So you start to move to evaluate the government based on post-material considerations, um, which is, you know, in many cases, expectations rise and trust falls because people have expected their government to, to uh, perform better. Um, and now they're educated too. And so they're better at tracking it. Um, and so trust can fall even if a government becomes better. Right, right. Because people are watching it more closely. They're, you know, looking under the hood. Like, think about police trust. You know, I mean, like, police are probably, I mean, there has been a lot of militarization. But, I mean, just in terms of the way the average policeman treats people, it, it it's probably not worse than it was 50 years ago. Um, um, but, uh, I get, but, you know, there's a lot more suspicion uh, now. And I think that's because, we, we, you know, we just pay a lot more attention. Um and we're sometimes actually misled by a lot of the evidence that we that we see because it's selective. But nonetheless, the monitoring is greater. So even if police behavior uh, improves, they become more trustworthy with respect to their duties. Um, we may we may actually trust them less. So a lot of the time, you know, personal economic improvement will will figure into political trust. Um, but um, um, Lower inequality and lower corruption are something that people really care about, especially when they start getting wealthier and they feel like they can attend to those considerations rather than the more basic things like security and, you know, economic prosperity. And as I said to everyone listening, that there's a more exhaustive conversation about all these these factors, whether it be social or, or political trust factors in Kevin's book, which, again, we, we encourage you guys to check out. I, I really enjoyed it and, and it was great. So there's more in there for the last sort of third or last swing of our episode here, I do want to shift our gears over to this idea of maintaining or restoring trust in our in our societies today. And obviously, you you come down on the side ultimately of a, what are we can be called classical liberal, liberal democratic, traditional liberal democratic institutions and, and, yeah. and societal factors that will help us at least maintain or restore trust in our societies today. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to pick one of the pillars that you talk about is so important for maintaining or restoring trust, which is civil society and freedom of association. Why is it so important that we take that out of this giant ball that we're considering today and, and really focus on that for us to understand how crucial that is for us to maintain or increase social trust? The overall me message of the book is that we can restore a lot of trust within the liberal democratic policy toolkit. So we don't need to go to populism of a left wing or right wing sword. We don't need to drain the swamp and throw out the bums. I mean, we do in a way, but the, right, the right. point is we we don't have to fundamentally change the system in order to restore trust. So I talk I talk about the way that what I call liberal rights practices create and sustain social and or political trust. And liberal rights practices are basically the practices of, of codifying, recognizing, and respecting certain constitutional rights. Um, and those include, you know, there are some where we couldn't find correlations. Freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion did not show up in, in what, we, what we looked at initially. But that we only, we only took a gen, general look, but there didn't seem to be any correlation at all between, say, a country's level of free speech and its level of social or political trust. Um, but there were four that showed up in the data that I thought I could talk about, and freedom of association was one of them. The hard question with freedom of association is what kind of association do you have? Some are integrated associations in the sense that they, uh, um, <coughs> they interact with civil society more broadly. 
So, you know, you work in a soup kitchen and you interact with poor people, you interact with people of different race or a different religion, right? But then there are also isolated associations where you only interact with group members and those can decrease trust. I think on balance, associations tend to put people in, con in contact with those that they don't know as well. So the, the ones that really go out of their way to isolate themselves are less common. Um, <clears throat> because compare what you'd be doing if you weren't a member of an association, right? Um, you'd be spending time with, you know, your family or your friends rather than, you know, but a lot of churches, for instance, you know, they push people out into the world to interact with people they wouldn't ordinarily interact with. People have positive experiences, particularly when they're younger. They come away with more social trust. Um, it's also the case that a lot of associations give people kind of practice in, in democratic politics um, or will directly encourage people to be involved in democratic politics. Um, and then when they are actually involved, that can increase trust because they get to see how the system works. I think here it's very important for us to note because a lot of people sometimes when they think the democratic process, they think, oh, that means just voting. But in the in your book, you talk about it in the in the broader sense, being involved yeah. in the democratic process. Yeah. Yeah. Being involved in elections. Um, so, you know, organize, you know, not just casting the vote, but all the other things that go or figure into to that being able to encourage others to vote and that sort of. That, or being being involved in the you know polling stations. I actually wish I'd been I talked more about that in the book because it's been it's such an issue right now. Right. Because the people working on the polling stations, I, I bet if you surveyed them have much higher trust in the system because there are all these people who are like, oh, there's fraud. But these people are like, no, there's no fraud at all. I mean, so they're I think Republican poll workers versus the average Republican voter are likely to have wildly different estimates of voter fraud. I, I would bet that right now. I would bet someone on that. Um, maybe not wildly, but a lot um, of, di of disagreement, which you're seeing in Georgia right now, for instance, where the Secretary of State is just digging in and saying, "We did the right, we did the right thing." So, so here's as you're ultimately saying, here's a situation where actually getting out there and frankly associating with people, whether yep. individually with a group or your group associating with other groups, that ultimately just brings you more, I guess, frankly, like local tacit knowledge, things like that, that enable you to see and interact with others and makes you more more yep. more trusting ultimately of others. That's right. That's the idea. I mean, the problem with the freedom of association data is that it was taken for granted as decisive in the early 90s. Um, so there was like, oh, like, of course, there's a trust association connection. And then a lot of people examined the earlier theories and just like they were like, these are just totally false. They don't really show up in the data. But more recent stuff, more subtle, has, you know, still su suggest a smaller but nonetheless positive correlation. However, however, there is the confounding factor that um, high, high trusters are high joiners. So if you trust other people a lot, you're more likely to join an association. So that's part of the explanation of the correlation. Some people think it is entirely high trusters being high joiners. Um, but my guess is when they start to break this down by age, it's um, there. It's going to be the case that if you just look at, say, 10 to 30 year olds. Right. Cub Scouts. Right. Right. Yeah. That's right. what you're saying. That's that's going to have a real effect. Whereas if you're 60, you know, you've, you've had your life experience. You have your theory about how the world works. Right. Um, that's not going to you know affect your your trust levels very much. Um, so ultimately what I would like to see is, you know, to uh, disentangle these, 
these causal factors is for people to break it down by age. That's my my theory anyway. And I'm going to move us to another pillar that you think is very important for sustaining and, and, and restoring trust, which which is the the market economy. And ultimately, yeah. in, in the book, you talk about how markets and private property are important for social and political trust. Um, if you can get into that right now, that, that'd be great. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing about markets is that they allow people and give people an incentive to have positive interactions with others. So we know that market-based societies are more trusting. Um, and it is true that when people trust each other more, they exchange more. So trust does facilitate markets. Um, and it's extremely important for that reason. I mean, it can affect the social trust levels, can create gargantuan differences in wealth between different societies, and they have. Um, but there's also just the, the contact hypothesis, right, that, that you know, if you're in a society where there's a lot of black markets and contracts are not well enforced and property titles are not well defined, um, then, yeah, your interact, your economic transactions are probably not going to be trust building because people are going to defraud you and so on and so forth. Um, but in market based societies where legal property rights are well protected, tax rates may be high. But, you know, Sweden, you have high tax rates, but legal property rights are about better protected there than anywhere in the world. Right. So if you need to make a market transaction, there's like zero chance that you're going to be defrauded um, um, or, or cheated in some way, like basically nil. Right. Um, and so market transactions in those in those environments should build social trust. And I also think that um, markets build political trust. But with a different causal channel is because markets build economic growth and create wealth and prosperity. And so that is, you know, a way that you get the direct causal connection. So, so the idea is like, I think that market interactions increase social trust, but social trust increases market participation and exchange, which in a more exchange means more growth and more growth means more political trust. So that's another case where there is a series of causal links, positive causal links between different kinds of trust and uh, participation and existence of markets. So so far, we, we, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about ways that effectively reference like a country or a society and how they trust each other internally. For example, the citizens of the U.S. trusting each other in the market or or having political trust. Do, do you have thoughts on the damaging effect of, of of the different rhetorics and points of view or, or any of the things we've been seeing today on how those have been sowing the seeds for sort of, if you will, like a sort of international social or political distress that we're, we're seeing uh, in, in some areas of society? Like, is that is that anything that you'd like to add on top of? I mean, the difficulty is that we just we we don't. We don't know very anywhere near as much because basically all the data is national. Right. Um, so and it's also the case that, you know, you, you just don't interact with people from other countries all that much. I mean, some some countries do a lot of countries, you know, there's just. I mean, the average American, you know, the country's so big, they just don't interact with 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 uh, people in other countries, right? Crossing borders, right? Um, so everyone they're looking at or judging either are parts of their society or um, aren't, um, in which case, you know, they don't see them. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's harder to say there. I mean, my inclination is to think that if trade internal to a country is trust building and positive, then trade between countries should be. And that positive interactions with immigrants should increase trust with immigrants um, and negative act rate interactions would, would decrease them. Um, but given that I think the hostility to immigrants is out, is, is not proportioned to immigrant behavior, 
um, that most interactions with immigrants are going to pleasantly surprise people, right? So, um, you know, when they learn that not all immigrants, like some immigrants have been here for decades, and, you know, when people actually start to learn, like, how difficult it is to become a citizen, then I think a lot of their attitudes would soften. But that's a guess, but that's guess, but it's based on other other literature, but it, but it's still a guess. It's a bit it's a bit more practical than we sometimes get on the curious task in terms of the narrow political discussion or political scene today. But but I think it's very very timely. So, but Biden has been called the incoming president of, of the United States as we record this today. Uh, we're, this is before the inauguration. We're recording this, but uh, I, I think it's safe to say as as we've been talking that that trust in many areas of American society is extremely low for certain things. What what politically speaking do you think any whether it's Biden or any incoming leaders should be doing in the United States, both rhetorically and policy wise to sort of either sustain or repair some of uh, the damage by, by whoever anyone thinks has created damage in the United States so far. So um, we need both policy and behavioral changes with regard to public corruption. The greatest damage that Trump has done is that he's violated all kinds of basic democratic norms. Like don't put your family in positions of, of power where they have control over things like Ivanka and Jared. Like, right. That's just, a t- that's just nepotism. It's just total, totally corrupt. Right. Um, it's also the case that Trump didn't divest when he became president. He's never released his tax returns. Um, so you don't know if he's engaged in, well, you, we know if he's engaged in shady dealings, but like we would have even more decisive evidence. Right. So there is this act that was passed by Congress last year um, called the, for the people act. Um, it includes many provisions like automatic voter registration that Republicans are likely, you know, that's why it didn't come before the Senate because I think Republicans don't want automatic voter registration. Like if you had that, it would never go away, right? Like people would go crazy if you took away their, you know, their automatic registration. I still think, I think it's a great idea because, you know, there won't be any of this voter fraud stuff because everyone's automatically registered. People don't have to complain about voter suppression as much because they can't suppress the registration process. Um, but the stuff I really like are, for instance, delays and how long uh, between when people leave public office and when they take a private sector position. So like the For the People Act would extend it from like a year to two years. Um, they'd also reauthorize the Office of Government Ethics and they put in very specific requirements for divestment and stuff like that for the president, the vice president, and other other leaders. Um, it won't pass a Republican Senate, I don't think, um, which is a shame because I think I think there's a lot of provisions in it that um, a, that the you know classical liberals could could really get on board with. We like impartial rule of law. We like politicians that aren't making a lot of noise and throwing their weight around. Um, uh, we like low corruption in government. And so, you know, a lot of these things I think would facilitate that. So really, the more we can do to uh, attack public corruption, and I'm not saying it's limited to Trump. It was just especially brazen. Right, I mean, right. Like there was no, cor- I mean, Obama was actually low corruption. I mean, it's real, was low. And, and W was too, relatively speaking. But Bill Clinton, you know, was bad in some ways. But, you know, go back further, like Nixon or JFK was very corrupt. Um, and we've had lots of corrupt presidents, um, but they hid it more back then because of media. Um, uh, the media would, would just not talk about things that embarrass leaders. Now they will. Um, so, yeah, the Biden needs to be above board in his own personal behavior. He has to hire, you know, appoint, help appoint uh, people that are uh, more uh, uh, experienced 
Um, now, the worry is their experience in making the government larger and so less effective and just. Um, so, I, you know, like Elizabeth Warren as Treasury Secretary is going to worry me as a classical liberal um, because she wants to create more fairness and less corruption, but she goes about it the wrong way by creating a much larger regulatory apparatus, which makes it a much tastier regulatory capture uh, target. So, but if I were Biden and I wanted to increase trust, I would, I would focus on anti-corruption, sweeping anti-corruption legislation. So from what I'm gathering, you're saying it truly is, there's a lot of work to be done on both the sort of social and norm side, but also of course the actual policy and corruption side. That's right. And sometimes when norms, social norms are violated, we have to codify them into legal norms. Hmm, yeah, and I point. think for instance, stuff like divestment is like that. Trump violated the norm, you know, and the norm now needs to just be enforced. I mean, the interesting thing about a lot of the For the People Act is it would make it basically impossible for Trump to run in 2024 because he would have to do all of these things that he's totally unwilling to do. And I'm not saying that's in itself a good reason to do it, but, you know, I mean, uh, it's sort of icing on the cake. It wouldn't be the first time in American history a norm had to be codified, if I'm understanding correctly. Like the two-term presidential limit is a great example of that, right? That's right. That's correct. So, so Kevin, our time together is pretty much wound down here. So let's head to our formal wrap-up. I want to I say we've ultimately talked about a lot, and we could go on probably for hours on this topic, of course. And there's more in the book, as I told our listeners. So let's try our best to bring at least the conversation we had today full circle and put a finer point, if we can, on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on whether polarization can be reversed? If you wanted to leave people with a couple of takeaways or thoughts, what would those ultimately be? The first thing that I would say is that we need to be thinking about polarization in tandem with trust. Because if we only focus on polarization, we're dealing with something that people think is bad, but is only conditionally problematic. So, you know, polarization of different kinds is primarily worrisome under low trust conditions. And so if we want to deal with polarization, we've got to study trust. And then we have to do, and I think, adopt a new kind of policy orientation where we say we don't just care about getting policies we think are good. We also care about policies that we think will increase bipartisanship and trust. And those may not always be the same policies. Um, so, for instance, I think, you know, one policy that would go a long way to increasing economic growth and equality would be to deregulate housing uh, and letting people build a lot more housing. Um, and a lot of Democrats are going to be very hesitant to do that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, some people, you know, I think that would be trust increasing in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, and the, for the people act is a way of reducing, uh, uh, mistrust, but the Republicans aren't going to go for it because they're worried it's going to mean they lose elections, um, more often. So, you know, what I would like to say is, yeah, the major parties aren't going to like all this stuff, but they're things that we need to start insisting upon and asking for and to say, look, you know, we hate each other and that's something we want to deal with. Um, and we can deal with that in civil society. And we can also deal with it in government. No, I think it's a great place to end it. Kevin Vallier, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thanks for having me on. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.